0: Genesis chapter 14. While you turn there, I want to ask you to pray about a matter. Uh, My father is down at UT Hospital right now. He's been having some health issues and uh, some heart issues and everything. So I want you to pray for him. I believe the Lord's got it all under control. We have a faithful God. Amen. And uh, I know we can trust him, but I want you to be praying for him. And uh, we're just asking the Lord to lift him up. And I'll tell you, I expect a lot of amens this morning because y'all ain't going to be out there sucking on that hard candy, amen? (laughs) Normally dad's walking around with that candy bag passing out candy to everyone and uh, he ain't doing that this morning, so I'll be expecting a lot of amens this morning. Genesis chapter number 14, and uh, I want to begin reading at verse number 1. Genesis chapter 14, and we'll begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read down a pretty good piece down to verse number twenty. 4, Genesis chapter number 14, verse number 1, the Bible says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabar, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Keterleomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Keterleomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in ashtaroth Carnaim, and the Zumims in Ham, and the Emims in Shave-Kirithaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El-Paran, which is by the wilderness." And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Kedarlaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings, with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Caterloomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the Kingsdale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. I ask that you would move in this service. Lord, we have, we have desperate need of you. Lord, we didn't just want to come and gather and be here and see faces and shake hands. Lord, we came to hear from you. And I pray that you would have perfect liberty to move and to work in this place. Lord, if if I am the hindrance, break my heart this morning. Lord, I pray the same for each and every person here, that you do a work in them that would redound unto eternity. Lord, would bring you glory, not just on today, but for ages to come. Would change lives and would draw us closer unto you. I pray for those that cannot be here today, those facing health difficulties, those traveling. Lord, be with them and bless them. Lord, I pray most of all for what will take place in this location that you'd receive glory out of our receptiveness to the Word of God and our obedience to you. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter number 14 is a sweeping chapter in the Word of God. It is easy sometimes when we read the Bible to miss the full effect of what's being described in a given passage. But we need to understand that this, this chapter of Scripture, it literally takes in conflicts, wars, slaughters, deaths, kings and nations. And we can see the hand of God moving in this region of the world in distinct providence and doing also with at the centerpiece of His providence, this man by the name of Abraham. If you've studied your Bible, you know that this portion of the book of Genesis, it's really not a story about kings, it's really not a story about nations, but it's a story about a man and his family. God using Abraham to be the germ of the plan of God regarding the nation of Israel and the work that God would do throughout the Old Testament. But I'm interested when I read this passage of Scripture, not just in understanding it in its context, although that, of course, is a a vital understanding we must have in any passage of Scripture. But I want us to apply it to our lives this morning. I don't know about you, but when I read this, there's a lot that does not resonate with my everyday life, admittedly so. But there's much more that does speak directly to the situation that you and I are in on this very day. When I read this passage of Scripture, there are three things that sort of frame the backdrop of this passage. The first thing that I think frames it is the conflicts of the world. We read, and I've got to just give a thank you to Alexander Skirby for teaching me all those names. Amen. And, uh, because this old hillbilly would never have gotten them even close to right, uh, without that help. But when we read about all these kings and all these nations, we're really reading about two alliances that found themselves at odds and that waged war with one another. One is an alliance of four great kings that seem to be the agitators and the, and the hostile actors. And then there is a smaller confederacy, though it is of more nations, it is of lesser people. There are five kings that find themselves subject to this greater alliance. We read all those names, Amraphel and Ariok and Keterleomer. I I tell you, any of you young parents looking for good Bible names for your kids, I think that's a good one. Keterleomer, amen? Probably get the nickname Cheddar, amen? A title, this man who the Bible calls king of nations. He was the king of various tribes. And then the Bible describes Bera, the king of Sodom. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah. Shinab, the king of Adma. Shemabar, the king of Zeboam. And Zoar, the king of a place called Bela. And when we read these passages, if we don't slow down, we will miss a deeper narrative that God is weaving before us. You understand, these are real kings over real people. This was a real battle that took place and there were undoubtedly thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of men that were slain on the battlefield. And what God is doing is in type and in figure in many ways describing the great conflicts of this world system. Can I tell you, we're living in tumultuous times. You understand, people want to blame everything on God. They want to blame the brokenness of, of this world on God. But can I remind you, he may be the God of the universe, but right now, currently, he's not the God of this world. The Bible describes Satan as the God of this world. He is the one wreaking chaos and havoc and confusion. And when we read these names, they almost sound like a composite picture of Satan and his working in this world. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, if we just give you a few of these names and their definitions, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, his name means speaker of darkness. If that's not a reminder of him that first spoke darkness. I don't know what is. Ariok, his name means lion-like. He's the king of a place called Elisar. Elisar means God is chastener. Man, that sounds like the work of the devil, don't it? He's the roaring lion that walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he's the one that wants to paint God as a taskmaster, as a cruel master. Uh, We find this name Keterleomer. It means handful of sheaves, which might not be significant in and of itself, but he's the king of a place named Elam. And Elam means hidden things. The devil certainly is the one that's trafficking in hidden things. We read about this man, Tidal, he's the king of nations. And I actually don't think he's a type of Satan. I think he's probably a type of the Antichrist. The name Tidal, it means great son. And when it calls him the king of nations, what it means is a great conflagration of of Gentile peoples. In other words, it reminds us of the man who will be the great son of this world system that will preside over a confederacy, an alliance of world nations one day. All these men have bound together and and gone in an alliance against these men, Bera. And you say, well, preacher, I guess those are the bad guys. It must be the good guys are on the other side. No, here's one thing you'll learn real quick about the world's conflicts. There ain't no good guys on either side. Because we read about these other men, Bera, the king of Sodom. Bera means son of evil. Uh, Sodom means ruin or burnt place. It means a wasteland. Bersha means with wickedness. And he's the king of Gomorrah. Gomorrah actually does mean ruin or, or a wasteland. Shinab, his name means changing the father. Boy, that sounds like the work of Satan, don't it? To change our idea of who the heavenly father is. He's the king of Adma, which means earthy. And you might say, well, preacher, that don't mean anything. But can I remind you that Adam, the first man, his name is deeply connected with this place, Adma, and Adam's name meant earthy or meant of the earth. Uh, It was associated with the red clay of the earth, and and Adma means earthy. If Satan hasn't wanted to be the king of mankind, I don't know what his ambition has been. Shema it means lofty flight. It means prideful insolence. Man, don't that remind us of Satan and him exalting himself against the throne of God? Zoar means little one. And in fact, we would find a little bit about how that name got to be applied to that city because uh, Lot, when he's fleeing from the vale of Siddim, when God is raining destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, he begs the angel to let him go back to a place called Zoar, which means little one. Evidently, they had changed the name of this city to the name of their prior king and he calls it Zoar, a little one. And yet, that little one became the destruction of his family. That makes sense because the name Bela, Zoar, Joar is the king of Bela, and Bilah means destruction. Can I tell you this? The devil always wants to make it seem like a little one, but it's always leading to destruction. say, so, preacher, what do you get now with all these names? I'm saying, in many ways, this is a rogues gallery of the devil's conflict, of the devil's destruction, of the devil's wars in this world. And can I say that you and I, as a child of God, we've got to live in that conflict-ridden world. We've got to live in a world that is full of hate and destruction, chaos and confusion on every hand. I think the conflicts of the world is at the the backdrop of this passage, but then I notice the captives of the world are mentioned. Verse number 11 says this, They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And I say we're not only facing a world that is increasingly chaotic, but we're also facing a Christianity that is increasingly worldly. Abram will go on to mount uh, his uh, armed assault against these kings, and it's a testimony uh, to the uh, uh, to the ability of God and to the power of God, because Abraham and 318 household servants, not men of war, but household servants, by the strength and power of God, chase these conquerors all the way from the south to the northern tip of the land of Israel, all the way from down in Mamre, all the way up to west of Damascus, and they defeat them and destroy them. Why did they? they? They do that because they're trying to rescue those that have been taken captive by the world. Can I tell you part of our responsibility as born again believers is to reconcile men unto God. You say, preacher, we can't reconcile them. Oh, I understand that. But the ministry of reconciliation has been given unto us. Abraham goes out and he's trying to rescue these that have been taken captive by the world. It reminds me of what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 about the servant of the Lord in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. That peradventure God may give them repentance and that they may recover themselves, he says, out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. We're living in a Christian world that has in many ways been taken captive by this world. It's been co-opted. It's been hijacked. The Christianity this world at least tolerates is not even resembling Bible Christianity. And Abraham as the uh, arbiter and as the steward of the true revelation of God, he takes up sword to go out and rescue his nephew who's been taken captive. It's interesting that Lot is took captive out of Sodom, but he wouldn't have even uh, been taken captive if he hadn't been there in the first place. Can I say this? We shouldn't be surprised if our family winds up captives of this world if we make our home place in Sodom in the first place. If we buy into this world system, and listen, I'm not recommending we go out and live off-grid somewhere. Uh, I mean, I wish I could, amen, but I'm not saying you have to. But I am saying if we plug into this world's way of thinking and if we allow it to define and shape our worldview, if we accept as premise their value system and allow them to define the terms of how we live our life instead of biblical truth, then we shouldn't be surprised when our family is took captive in this world. I see not only the conflicts of the world and the captives of the world, but hey, thank God there was one man that did get victory over that crowd and his name was Abraham Abraham. This passage details for us the conquest of the world. The Bible says in verse number 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. Amen. I guess they had weapons laying around the house. Amen. Amen. You ain't chewing on no candy this morning. I guess he had weapons laying around the house because he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, pursued them unto Dan. Preacher, what is that? That's a militia. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. I remember hearing a wise man say that a history book without a map ain't fit to own. Let me tell you, you ought to look at a map sometime and look at how far the distance was. I mean, this was no slight thing. Abraham put at peril his own family, his own life, his own livelihood, and he chased those scoundrels all the way from the very bottom to the very top of the nation. You say, preacher, why would he do that? Because that's what it took to get Lot back. Hey, we may not be able to just walk across the front yard to rescue some of them. Some of them we may have to go great distances. Hey, listen, you got family. I got family. We love them. We're praying for them. We want to see God do a work in their life. We may not be able to walk across the street to reach them. We might have to go the length and breadth of the land to reach them. We find that Abram, he does that. He goes the length and the breadth of the land. But I like verse 16. Verse 16 says he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. You say, Preacher, what does that show you? Well, it shows me this. Though we may live in a defeated world, we can have victory through Jesus Christ. We don't have to go the direction that the world is going. So here comes Abram back home, a conqueror on this day. He comes back with the spoil in tow of what God has given him. God has blessed him. God has favored him. God has strengthened him. And he comes back and he's met by two different kings. When he gets back to a place the Bible calls the Valley of Sheva, the King's Dell, you ought to look in your Bible, you ought to look on a map sometime, you know where that is, that's Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem and he's traveling south toward the plains of Mamre, out comes two different kings. There's a king that's come from the mountain, his name is Melchizedek. Then there's a king that's come from the slime pits, that's the king of Sodom. And both these kings approach him, and both want tribute from him, and both want the allegiance of him and Abram is now in a situation where he must decide between two different kings. I told you earlier, I read this passage, and there are some things that that admittedly are not really real i mean i, I don 't know maybe we 'll have to train our household servants and go to war i, I don 't know. <laughs> I mean, nothing surprised me anymore, but I'm not really looking to that for instruction. But I do see in a man that has gotten victory over the world, that has defeated the conflicts of the world, at least in his own life and in his own family, that has rescued his brethren. God is blessing him. God is using him. God is doing a work in his life. And now he finds himself standing facing two kings, and a decision must be made about which will be the king of his life. See, in many ways, it reminds me of you and I. Here we sit and I trust that you're saved here today. If you're not, you can be. I, 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 I trust you're saved, but I don't assume you're saved. Uh, if you're here lost today, you can be born again. God will save you. He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. But if you're here today and you're saved by the grace of God, hey, listen, our faith is the victory that overcometh the world. We are tasked with the ministry of reconciliation, trying to reach those that are captives of Satan at his own will and deliver them. And we have gotten victory over this world and over its system. But there's still a choice that has to be made. You see, you got all that when you got born again. But now a choice must be made in your life. You're faced by two kings. You're faced by the king of Sodom and you're faced by the king of Salem. And you now have a choice that you have to make. You say, preacher, lay it out a little plainer. You're either going to let Satan have the preeminence in your life or you're going to let Jesus Christ have the preeminence in your life. They both want to be king, but they can't both be king. And so you're going to have to make a choice. And I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Which will it be, the king of Sodom or the king of Salem in your life? You're not going to be your own king. You're not going to be your own master. And so you're going to have to choose a king. When I look at Abraham and his greeting these kings, there's more being uh, being implied here than what's being explicitly declared. When they come out, they're not just coming out to say howdy. When they come out and meet him, they are meeting him as a conqueror coming from the spoils and they are meeting him to try to find out who he's going to give fealty to. See, here's what they're wanting. And Abraham, in this decision, he was doing three things. Number one, he was acknowledging a king. He was going to look at these two men. Now, one of them is the king of Sodom, a city a little further to the south. Another is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem itself. But here where he stands, who's going to be the king of the ground he's standing on? Can I tell you this? Hey, Satan has his realm, no question. And certainly the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But who's the king of the ground you're standing on this morning? He's going to acknowledge a king and a rightful authority. Not only will he by his response acknowledge a king, but he was also honoring a king. He was declaring that king to be rightful and to be worthy and paying homage and paying honor to that king. Can I say your life is going to pay honor to one king or the other? Your life will be a testimony to one king or to the other. But then on a deeper level, I would say this. In many ways, Abraham, he is selecting a king. He's deciding who is going to have the right of way, at least in this moment in time, at this place in his life. And can I say, all of us must choose which king will rule in our life. We all must choose who will have the authority in our life. So what was the decision that Abraham made? I want you to notice two thoughts this morning. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to short you. There's a lot of thoughts under those thoughts. But two thoughts this morning in looking at Abraham's behavior And I hope the Lord speaks to your heart. I want you to notice, number one, his defiance of the king of Sodom. Here comes the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is a defeated king. He has had his kingdom already appointed and taken away from him. In fact, were Abraham not coming back as victor, the king of Sodom would not have any kingdom whatsoever. He is a defeated king. He is a disgraced king. He is in many ways a deposed king. But he still presides over that slime pit. And I say, man, what a picture that is of the devil. He's a defeated king. He's a disgraced king. He's a deposed king. His authority is illegitimate. His authority is null and void. But because it's a slime pit, he still sits over top of it. The king of Sodom comes up to him. And I want you to notice, number one, the request of the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Now, that's an interesting statement that the king of Sodom made. And, and I want to be, I want to be uh, sincere and, and I want to be authentic in our understanding of the Bible here. I, I don't think that he's necessarily asking Abram to give up his own trained servants. But what he's doing is, it seems gracious on the face of. The king of Sodom is going to him and saying, Abraham, you went and rescued all this. We need our wives back. We need our kids back. But all the spoils, you can have all of those. You can take all of those unto yourself. All that matters to me is the people. That's all that I want. On the face of it, it was probably a gracious act by the king of Sodom. He was probably in many ways acknowledging what uh, Abraham had done on that day and acknowledging what Abraham had achieved. But I want you to notice a deeper truth here. Notice what he really was after. Notice, number one, he requested the person. It's interesting. You know, Satan, he knows the true value of things. He does not request the riches because the riches don't really mean anything. Instead, what he wants is the people. And it's a reminder to you and I, you know, that's what he's after in our life. You'd be amazed. I mean, some people can be bought cheaply. And that's the truth. George Washington, you say every man had his price. I, mean, I guess he's in government. He'd have known. And <laughs> at the end of the day, listen, most people, their price is pretty cheap. wonder what your family's worth to you. Wonder what your marriage is worth to you? Is it worth a job? Is it worth a new car? Is it worth a boat? Is it worth a little attention from somebody that don't belong to you and you don't belong to them? Is, is that what your marriage is worth? Wonder what your kids are worth? Are they worth peace and quiet? Just give them whatever they want so that they'll be quiet is Are they worth that to you? Are they worth convenience? Are they worth a sense of self importance? Wonder what your price is. Can I tell you this? Whatever your price is, Satan understands the true value of things and he's likely to pay you anything if he can get what really matters. (laughs) We're living in a hyperinflationary age, uh, in case you didn't know. If you don't know, I need to borrow some money from you. Amen. We're living in a hyperinflationary age, and I always try to remind myself and others in this day, money money is a fungible thing. I mean, money has money is weird. It, it, it has a value, I guess, because they say it does. But it was interesting the other day. Uh, one of the uh, not the chairman of the Fed, but one of the one of the whatever they call them, the governors of the Feds or whatever. You know, one of these people that decide how your life goes and mine. They were interviewing this guy. And this is a few months ago, but he made an interesting statement. He was talking about the Federal Reserve and he was talking about tightening and loosening and interest rates and things we are not expected to be able to understand. And But he made this statement. He said the Fed has unlimited money. That's how he said it. They were talking about how much money the Fed was printing and whether the Fed could, could loosen or tighten or what they were doing. And, and he let slip something that everybody in Washington knows, but they don't want you knowing, which is that in their mind they have unlimited money. He said, we can just keep printing it. We actually have unlimited money. You know what that means? That means nobody's really got money. (laughs) You know, unlimited something ain't worth nothing, right? And it's interesting to me that people would sell such precious and eternal things as their marriage, their family, their kids, their testimony for something as common as money. Something that is, if you really talk to the people pulling the levers of power in this world, they see it as so cheap that it's something they don't even reckon in their plans. wonder what your price is. i tell you this, Satan is apt to pay you any price because he understands his currency is fiat in the first place. It's not real. It's phony. It has no value. It has no substance. You know why Abraham refused the king of Sodom's offer? Because he understood what true values were. We need a revival of biblical values in our culture. We need a revival of biblical values amongst Christians. To begin to value things in a biblical manner and recognize he requested the persons. Why? Because the persons were what were irreplaceable. He was saying, I can dig more gold. I can dig more gems. I can rob more money. But I can't get the people. I want those more than anything else. And can I say the most precious thing that you have in your life outside of your salvation and relationship with the Lord is the people that God has blessed you with a sphere of influence over. He wanted the the people, but really what did he want in wanting the people? I understand what he wanted to himself, but why did Abraham refuse him? What was he asking? Well, Abraham would go on to refuse him, and this is what he would say. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the Possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine. Now, I don't know if the king of Sodom was aware of this oath or this pledge, But I know that Abraham was. And had Abraham taken the offer of the king of Sodom, he would have not just been forfeiting the persons, he would have been forfeiting his principles. You know, one of the things that men that are in power in this world do is they try to get people to do things so depraved, so wicked, so evil, and get proof on them. Because once you've done that and a person has sold their principles, you are able to control them and make them do anything that you want to make them do. There's a, it's a true one. There's a lot of, there's a lot of the things in this world that, that just get hinted at that if you really want to know what they're all about, they're really about that ability to control people. They're really about that ability to control people. I mean listen, people don't have to go to an island into the Caribbean to satisfy their depraved lusts. What's that all about man? Well it's about being able to control people. It's about getting people to do things so debased and so degenerate and so despicable and getting proof of it so that you can then turn around and say, if you ever don't do what we say, then we'll destroy you. It's funny, their system's breaking down because they have, through their eroding of culture, created a society where nothing is taboo anymore. And in doing so, they probably are losing their ability. I mean, what are you going to shame people with anymore? I mean, people take the most debased, degenerate behavior known to mankind, parade it up and down the street and call it pride. Pride. What are you going to blackmail people with anymore, you know? (laughs) See, here's the thing that the king of Sodom did understand. If he could get Abraham to forfeit his principles, then he had control of him. Can I tell you, one of the things that Satan does in trying to drag you to the depths of dregs of sin in your actions and in your behavior is to cause you to have such a low opinion of yourself from a biblical perspective that you no longer value the things in your life that God values in you. You forfeit your principles, you'll forfeit everything else. I see his request, but then I want you to notice not only the request of the king of Sodom, I like the refusal of the king of Sodom. I like how Abraham answers him. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord. Now what does that mean? He's saying I've made a pledge to the Lord. I've made an oath to the Lord. I've made a promise to the Lord. And more than the persons, more than the prosperity, more than the loot, more than the spoils, more than the riches, more than my testimony, my promise to God is preeminent. I must keep that promise to God. Notice the basis of his refusal. It's really sort of summarized in three things. The first is his pledge to God. I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord. You know, when you got born again, you lift up your hand unto the Lord. What you did is you said, now, Lord, I can't save myself, I need you. The Bible describes God in His saving grace as extending a hand out to mankind in the mire and clay of sin, in the brokenness and in the depravity of their lost condition. And you got born again because you reached up and you took that hand. And you pledged unto God who you were and who you would be. You said, Lord, I can't save me, but you can. I'll give you all of who I am if you'll give me who you are. You lift up your hand to him. Why then should the king of Sodom have any claim on you? Why then should the king of Gomorrah have any claim over you? Why should the kings of the slime pits of this world have authority in your life? They're not the ones that rescued you. They're not the ones that saved you. They didn't buy you. They didn't bless you. Uh, They didn't redeem you. You lift up your hand to God in heaven. And that ought to mean something. The first basis of it was his pledge to God. The second was the person of God. He says this, I've lift up my hand unto the Lord, unto Jehovah, the Most High God. In other words, he was saying, I cannot yield to your authority because I've already yielded to his authority. We find this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul stood before kings and Caesars. You understand that? This little broken, bent, blind Apostle would find himself standing before Nero himself one day and refusing to bow before him. He had bowed his knees to the Father of Heaven and so he would bow to no other. He had placed himself under subjection to the God of glory and who then could co-opt that authority out of his life. You understand that whenever you bow to the king of Sodom, you're bowing to a lesser king in direct contradiction of a greater king. Abram said, I can't bow to you, for I've already bowed to the Most High God. His pledge to God, the person of God, but then the possessions of God. I like how he says it. I like the way Abraham thinks. He says, "I, I, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, unto Jehovah, the Most High God. And don't you understand, King of Sodom, who he is? You want me to take the spoils of this battle? The the, the God that I serve is the possessor of heaven and earth. He said, there's nothing you can bribe me with. I'm too blessed. God's been too good to me. And anything that I need, he's got. (laughs) Anything you need, he's got. I know you might feel like there's times you need things that you don't get things. But if you really need things, you'll get things because your heavenly Father has got things. And anything you need, He's got. Anything that you desire, He's capable of. And because of that, why would you bow to the king of Sodom when the king of your soul already owns all things? I see the basis of His refusal. I see the terms of His refusal. I like how He says it that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine. I would imagine the king of Sodom probably, when he heard Abraham say this, he probably thought, oh, well, he's offended. I've I've not offered him enough. I mean, I'm just offering him the spoils of war. Maybe I should offer more. And Abraham says, no, 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 no. There's nothing you could give me that would be worth more to me than my principles. I don't have a price. There's nothing you could give me. I find it interesting. You know, most people's compromises in life don't take place over the big things. Listen, it's not it's not the chariots full of gold. It's not the boats full of silver. It's those threads and those shoe latchets. Moment by moment, compromise by compromise, that we sell away our allegiance and fealty to the Lord. But he said, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can give me. He says this in spite of the size of it. There's nothing you can give me from a thread to a shoe latch. I've had some shoe that were just threads, amen? But he said, it don't matter. It's interesting. He didn't say, neither a kingdom nor a nation. But he says, a thread or a shoe latch. He's saying, it's not that I am too prideful. It's that there's nothing that I want that belongs to you. He says, I won't take it in spite of the size. But he says, I won't take it in light of the source. He says, I don't want anything that's yours. Can I tell you, hey, listen, one of the things, there'd be a revival in, in, in churches if we just learned to not take things that are His. You know what biblical separation is, right? Biblical separation is saying, I don't want anything that's His. I, listen, I don't have to know 900 ways that it would destroy my life. If it's His, I don't want it. There's a lot of what is, is corroding our church is this obsession with the trinkets of the King of Sodom. And people will sit there and say, well, give me chapter and verse that it's wrong. Hey, listen, everything that we do ought to be based on the Bible. Everything we do ought to have a biblical perspective. But why is it that we want to uh, place the burden of proof on God and say, God, I'm going to do it unless you somehow prove to me that it's corrosive to the soul. Why instead is our worldview not Lord? What do you desire for my life? Why are we constantly running to the treasure box of the king of Sodom? Why are we constantly enamored with the trinkets of this world? And then would dare Shake our fist at God and defy Him and say, Now, God, you prove to me. Well, you prove that it's right. Then revel in it. You prove that it's wholesome. Then revel in it. You prove that it's Christ-like. Then revel in it. Abraham, he said, I don't want anything that's yours. I'm sure Abraham had threads and shoe latches. Something's holding his shoes on. It wasn't that the threads and the shoe latches were were wrong. (laughs) It was that they came from him. And he didn't want anything that came from him. I I see the terms of his refusal, but then I see the cause of his refusal. I like how he says it. You say, well, preacher, why? 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 Here's why. Lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich. (laughs) In other words, he looked at him and said, I know how this goes. The moment I take something from you, I've not only taken from you, I've given something to you. And what I have given to you is my implicit endorsement upon your kingdom. I tell you, nothing's for free, nothing's for free, nothing's for free. If the world comes along and offers you something for free, they just ain't told you what it costs yet. Nothing is free, nothing is free, nothing is free, nothing is free. free. said, preacher, why do you keep saying it? I'm going to keep saying it till you believe it. Nothing is free, nothing is free. Abraham understood that. He said, I know that if I take, I'm going to give. And he says, I understand if I take that, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a place in my life to boast in me and to point to something you've done in my life. We, we could say it this way. Why, why did he refuse to take it? Well, because it would have stolen God's glory. Can I remind you how Abraham got rich in the first place? I mean, you understand, he came penniless out of Haran. I mean, he he came with, with with no place to pillow his head. And God had blessed him. And God had prospered him. And God had made him rich to the point of being one of the preeminent men in that part of the world. But he knew what would happen. If he allowed himself to be entangled with the king of Sodom, then it would no longer be God that had done this. It would be the king of Sodom that had done it. He said, I'm not going to sell God's glory for a cheap trinket. I don't want people to look at my life and say the king of Sodom did this for you. I want them to be able to look at my life and say, hey, God did that for him. It would have stolen God's glory, but not only that, it would have stunted God's glory. From that day forward, every time people looked at his life, they would not have thought of God, they would have thought of the king of Sodom. They wouldn't have thought of what God had done, they would have thought of the king of Sodom. And forever, inextricably, eternally, his life would have been bound up with the testimony of the king of Sodom. Can I tell you something? And this is part of the reason I'm an independent Baptist. All right? I'm an independent Baptist. I have no affiliation. I am only just lightly affiliated with you. All right? We go church together, all right? That's it. I am an independent Baptist. You know why? Because I don't want my testimony yoked to anything but Jesus Christ. I don't want it yoked to a convention. I don't want it yoked to a movement. I don't want it yoked to anybody else. Why preacher? Why preacher? Because I don't trust people. Is that a problem? Well, it hadn't been thus far. (laughs) I want to be yoked to Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. He's perfect. He never messes up. I might mess up. (laughs) And I sure soil His testimony a lot, but He's never hurt mine. What he was saying was, I understand how this works. If I allow you a place in my life, all people will see in my life is you. And can I say, hey, listen, who we make king of our life is who people will see in our life. He refused the king of Sodom. I see his defiance of the king of Sodom. But then there's this mysterious man in the Bible. His name is Melchizedek. We only find him once in the Old Testament. And then his testimony is spoken of again in the New Testament. This man, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, he also approaches Abraham, but his approach is different. He comes to Abraham and, and he, he comes not as a, a king demanding allegiance, but as a priest offering intercession. Now, he is a king and Abraham is going to bow before him. But he comes to him. Not as a king saying, you ought to return to me the people or the spoils, but rather he comes bearing gifts and gives unto him. In other words, the best the king of Sodom could do is let Abraham keep what Abraham already had. He couldn't give him anything else. Why? Because he was bankrupt. But the king of Salem comes and he's bearing gifts. And Abraham now has a choice. Now, who is this Melchizedek, king of Salem? There's been commentators dispute and debate about this for ages and for years. And I can finally answer it for you today. I've done deep, intensive study. Preacher, who is Melchizedek? I mean, who was he? Is is it Christ in, in substance? Is he some ancient patriarch? And I can tell you exactly who he is. He's the king of Salem. I can make, I I can make two statements about the identity of Melchizedek. One is scriptural and the other is personal and conjecture. One, I can say this, he is not Christ. He is a type of Christ. Because the book of Hebrews says he is made like unto the Son of God. He was not Christ. He was not a theophany. He was an Old Testament character and figure. If you want my personal opinion about who I think it is, I I think it's likely that it was Shem, the son of Noah. You can disagree with that, and that's fine. Everybody's entitled to be wrong, but I I think it was probably Shem. I can give you reasons for that. Listen to how he's described in Hebrews chapter 7 verse number one says this for this Melchizedek king of Salem priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all first being by interpretation king of righteousness that's what his name literally means it means king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem why? because he was king of the Jerusalem region which is king of peace Jerusalem means founded in peace and, and he was the king of peace. And the Bible says this, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. I have two main reasons I think it was probably Shem. One is because they're still living in the age of the patriarchal priesthood. When the oldest individual living in a family would be the priest for that family. We find that pattern all the way through the Old Testament, but you can look as a simple example at Job who daily offered sacrifices for his children. And if you study the chronology, it is likely that Shem would have still been living at this time and would have been living in this region, and so it's likely. Also, something interesting, if a person was describing this individual and you describe someone as neither having beginning of days, wonder how they reckoned time right after the flood. They probably said, it's been a week since the flood. It's been a month since the flood. It's been a decade since the flood. You know who Shem was? He was a man from the other side of the flood. He was there before time began to that region and to that place. That's why I think it's him. You can disagree. Here's one thing we know for certain. Though he is not Jesus Christ, he is a type of Jesus Christ. He is a picture of Christ, the King of glory, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And now this king comes out to Abraham. And Abraham, though he had balked at the king of Sodom, he bows before the king of Salem. Can I tell you one of the greatest things you'll ever do in your life is bow before the king of Salem. One of the best things you'll ever do is bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. I had somebody ask me the other day about about lordship salvation. That's always a weird question to me. I mean, He is Lord. There's no question about that. I don't think sinners come to bargain with Him. I think they come broken to Him. Uh, But I also don't know or believe that that a person, when they come to Jesus Christ, understands the full depth of of what they're getting in believing on the Lord. And and I don't certainly think that a person has to come and confess every sin that they've ever committed or make God a bunch of empty promises they're going to break anyway in order to be saved. You say, preacher, what does that make you? It doesn't make me easy believism. It doesn't make me, Lord, I don't know. I, I guess it makes me weird. I'm a Bible believer. That's weird. But here's what I do know and here's what I do understand. that There's a great many people that they've bowed before him in salvation, but they've never bowed before him in submission. He's their savior. He saved them. He loves them. He's the savior of the body. But he has they have never really made him king in their life. And can I say the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life is when you crown him king. When you crown him king. Notice three things about this interaction. Notice the titles that were given this king. The Bible calls him three things. I just want to brag on the Lord and talk about how good he is. I would say this, number one, he's the perfect king. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Now, that's not to imply that Melchizedek lived a sinless life. I don't believe he did because he wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is the only perfect man ever to walk the earth. But his very title and his very name bespeaks the idea that amongst his peers he was the most righteous one. And can I say this? The Lord Jesus Christ, He's the perfect King. He's not a perverted King. He's not a polluted King. He's not an inept King. He's not an incompetent King. He is a perfect King. So understand that, listen, bowing before Him is going to mean yielding your life to a way of righteousness. You see, you've not really bowed to Him if you've not yielded your life to to the way of righteousness. You may be saved, you may be on your way to heaven, you may be born again. Praise the Lord. No man's righteous without first being born again. But I know a whole heap and mess of Christians born again, truly bona fide, indwelt by the Spirit of God, that are as filthy and wicked as a person could be. Amen. You say, preacher, what happened? Well, they've never they've never bowed to the king of righteousness and allowed him to be king in their life. He's He's the perfect king. Not only that, he's the priestly king. It's interesting in the Old Testament, it was forbidden for a man to be both priest and king. One of the ways that God maintained that boundary is that the priesthood was was the uh, purview of the Levites, the the Levitical tribe, the descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob, and and the kingly tribe from which the kings came were the descendants of of Judah, the son of Jacob, or the tribe of Judah. And so never were those two uh, to cross paths. That's why God smote Uzziah with leprosy when he is the king when into the temple to try to offer and and function in the office of the priesthood because it was forbidden of God, lest those two various vocations be polluted. But can I say also, because none could ever fit the perfect type, (laughs) none could ever perfectly present the priest king that God now has crowned. You see, he is prophet. Yes, indeed. But he is not just prophet. He is priest and he is king. He is the king that can condemn you, but instead intercedes for you. He is the sword that can slay you, but instead he's the censor that atones for you. He is the priestly king. I'm glad when I come and bow before him. I'm not bowing to have my head lopped off. I'm bowing to have my head lifted up. I'm not coming before him to be, to be slain and to be condemned and to be judged, but I'm coming before him that I might have intercession made with my God. He's the priestly king, and then he's the peaceful king. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. Can I tell you this? You're never going to have peace till you make him king in your life. You say, preacher, I can't have peace. Haven't you seen the world? Well, did you see it in Abraham's day? And yet Abraham bowed before the king of peace. I know what it looked like in the vale of Siddam. I know what it looked like on the war trail from 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 down at the Salt Sea all the way up to Hoba and Damascus. But up on the hill in Jerusalem, everything was peaceful. Why? Because the king of peace was reigning there. Can I say this world has its conflicts and chaos and confusion. And until the king of glory reigns in his kingdom in this world, it will always be that way. But That doesn't mean you can't have peace. Hey, let the peace of God reign in your hearts. Bow before the king of peace. I see the titles that were given him. I see the testimony that was given him. You say, Preacher, what testimony? Well, notice the testimony of his provisions. The Bible says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. What does that remind us of? We just last Sunday night, we, we had the Lord's Supper. The Lord, before he was crucified, instituted the Lord's Supper, not as a sacrament, not as a ritual, not as a rite, but as an ordinance. For those that knew the Lord, that they might remember his death till he come. And in that ordinance, the bread is a picture of his broken body. And the great juice is a picture of His shed blood for us. One commentator said this is the first Lord's Supper that ever took place when Melchizedek brought bread and wine. It's a picture of the gifts that the priest comes bearing. The broken body, the shed blood. And whenever he comes to Abraham, it's not to take, it's to give to him. Can I tell you this? No king's ever loved you like the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the testimony of his provision. There's the testimony of his priesthood. He was the priest of the Most High God. He was a king that could get you to God. He was a king that could facilitate your relationship with God. And can I tell you, if you really want to have your relationship with God in a right condition, you're going to have to bow before him that is the priest king if you're going to have a right relationship. You're going to have to subject yourself Under his authority. And then I see the testimony of his proclamation. The Bible says this, he blessed him. He didn't take he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the most high God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Melchizedek had a message. He had a testimony. What was his message? Well, he testified. I see his proclamation of God's favor. He looks at Abram and he says, Abram, God's blessed you. God's favored you. God loves you, Abram. God cares about you. God's interested in you. Can I say one of the great proclam? And you know, when a king makes a proclamation, that means something. You all right with me this morning? It's okay. Shoney's ain't going to close. Stay with me. Y'all getting a little weak. You ain't had your sugar pick me up is what it is. That's what it is. We should have passed out pixie sticks. You'd be running aisles. Amen? <laughs> when a king says something, it matters. When a president says something, it don't matter. When a congressman says something, it don't matter. When politician, but when a king says, it matters. A king's word, hey, listen. In the king's word is life and death. And Abram, listen. He was not. He was not observing something. He was decreeing something. He was looking at Abram and he was saying not just, oh, Abram, I can see God has favored you. But he was saying, God is favoring you. And can I say this? In his word and the power of it was the substance of the favor and relationship and station that Abraham enjoyed. Can I say this? Hey, it's in his word that we stand. It's in his word that we live and that we breathe. And part of of the blessed thing about bowing the knee and getting in the king's book that's what this King James Bible is. It's the King's book. It, not, not, not of King James, but of King Jesus. It's the King's book. And when you get in this book and read the King's decrees, you get a better, clearer understanding of the station that you have in life of the office that you hold in life and of the blessing of God in your life. I see his proclamation of God's favor, but then I see his proclamation of God's faithfulness. He says this, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Abraham, you stand here today because the God that I am the priest of has blessed you and has kept you and has strengthened you, and He has been faithful to you, Abraham. Uh, two things you'll learn when you get in this book, you'll learn, uh, you'll learn about how God sees you and you'll learn about how faithful God is. I see the testimony that was given him, but then I notice in closing the tithes that were given him. The Bible says this and he gave him tithes of all. I've heard people say before, tithing is not uh, a New Testament principle. And I, I agree with that to a certain degree. In the New Testament, we, we don't find that we weigh out, you know, with, with balances, a tenth. And, and I think if you're giving in that manner, I think you're missing the purpose of giving. Tithing may not be a New Testament principle, but it is an Old Old Testament principle. <laughs> it is a pre-Sanjah principle. Because before Levitical tithing was ever instituted, Abraham first gave a tithe of all unto Melchizedek. Tells me this, no matter what the law says about tithing, God still owns everything that I am and everything that I have. And is worthy of it. And so I shouldn't have to be told to give a tenth. In fact, I shouldn't be limited at the tenth that I might want to give. But instead I should just say, Lord, it's all yours. You tell me how you want me to use it for your glory and honor. And the Bible says he came and he gave tithes of all. What was he doing? Well, notice he was honoring him. It's what the book of Hebrews says. It says in verse number 4, Hebrews chapter 7, consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. He was honoring Melchizedek. He was, he was owning him as king. And he was saying, you see, a tenth was the tribute that would be paid to a king. Why do we give unto the Lord? Because he's king. Right. And he was paying tribute unto the king that he had chosen. The king of Sodom wanted to give him something. He said, I don't even want what you have to give me, but I will gladly give a king's tribute unto the rightful king. Notice what he did, two things. Number one, he honored him with his substance. He honored him with what he had. Now, this is interesting to me. The Bible says that that Abraham gave him tithes of all, a tenth of everything. Now, what is a tenth of all? A tenth of all would be of the spoils that he had taken. But now I want to remind you that Abraham took no spoils from this conquest. The king of Sodom tried to get him to. Abraham went up and he reclaimed goods that were not his in the first place. And the king of Sodom said, well, they're yours now. I mean, ancient rites of combat, you took it, you keep it. And Abraham said, I don't want it because it came from you. You take everything that is yours back with you. So where did he give from? He gave from his own pocketbook. He gave from his own purse. Abraham did not give from the spoils of war. Abraham had taken none. This was of his own. And you know, why would he do that? And David makes an interesting statement uh, in Second Samuel when he's buying the threshing floor of Orna. And Orna wants to give it to him. And, and this is what David says. He says, I want you to name a price. And here's why. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. He says, how dare I come and give to you what didn't cost me anything? It would not be truly sacrificial were it not coming from my hand in the first place. There we get to the very heart and spirit of what giving is, not just in a monetary sense, but the giving of our time and the giving of our talents and the giving of our testimony, the giving of our labor, the giving of our love. It's about giving to God something that is ours, that He may have it, that He might know that He is King and that He might be glorified as King. Hey, listen, we ain't giving if it ain't costing. And I don't just mean in the financial sense. Hey, you say, well, preacher, you know, I try to go to church occasionally when it's convenient. Uh, you might as well not even give it if you only give it when it's convenient. Because you're not really giving if you're only giving when it's convenient. Give God your table scraps, your pocket change, your leftover, your your, your crack of the couch change that your kid dug out. Hey, listen. And, and you say, preacher, you're, you're getting it given. You're getting it money. Well, number one, uh, you know, God has a, a, a right and authority over your money but I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. talking about in people giving their lives, they generally give the leftovers of it to God. Well, if I have time, well, hey, listen, He's the God of all time. Well, if I have energy, well, He's the one that gave you energy. Well, you know, if, if I take a notion to, the only reason you have the sentience to take a notion is God's blessed you to. And the fact is, everything of our life, our pocketbook, yes, but beyond that, all of who and what we are, we ought to honor Him with. He honored him with his substance, but then notice finally he honored him with his subjection. It's interesting, Paul's take on this in Hebrews chapter 7. He says this, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, that's the priests, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. He'll go on to say, don't you understand that the priesthood of Melchizedek, after whose order Christ was made a priest, is preeminent to the Levitical priesthood because Levi, in the loins of Abraham, paid honor and homage to the priesthood of Melchizedek when his uh, granddaddy Abraham paid tithes unto Melchizedek. In other words, it's saying that by this very action, Abraham was not just subjecting himself But in fact, all of his descendants under the authority of the king of Salem. This is an aside. You still with me this morning? This is an aside. But can I say this? Hey, daddies, when you bow, you're bowing your children as well. Mamas, when you bow, you're bowing your children as well. Granddaddies, when you bow before him, you're bowing your grandchildren as well. The preacher, why is it so important? Why is it so all fire necessary that I bow? Because you're bowing more than just you. You're bowing those under subjection to you. Abraham, he didn't just honor him with his substance, he honored him with his subjection. When he bowed the knee, he was saying, I need you. When he bowed the knee, he was saying, you're greater than me. When he bowed the knee, he was saying, you're you're better than I am. Hey, the the less is blessed of the better. When he was saying, bless me, he was subjecting himself and saying, you're the king of my life. Can I say in your life and in mine this morning, what a lot of us need, (laughs) what a lot of us need. We don't need a word of faith. We don't need a prayer answered. We don't need a blessing bestowed. What a lot of us need is to bow the knee. A lot of us need to hey, how long halt you betwixt two opinions if God, hey, if the Lord be God, then serve him, if Baal be God, then serve him. Why are we why are we uh middling uh, in the middle of all this? Why don't we instead just go ahead and bow the knee before him today? You say, Preacher, I won't bow before anybody. You will and you have. So why don't you bow, not before the king of Sodom today? But bow before the King of Salem. Bow before the Lord of glory. Bow before the Lord Jesus today. Let's bow together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the musician's going to come play. I want to give you an opportunity to bow the heart and the head before Him. Let Him be Lord of your life. Let Him be Lord of your life. Let, Let Him have the authority. Let Him have the governance. Let Him have His will and His way. Preacher, why should I? Because He is King. He is King. It's the most irrational thing in the world for the creature to rebel against the Creator, for the subject to defy the King. Why don't you just bow before Him today and let Him have His will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.